Hey, it's Brian Winter. This is the 100th episode of the AQ Podcast. We just wanted to thank our subscribers, and there are nearly 5,000 of you, for helping us get to this point. If you're feeling generous, it would really help us if you could leave a rating and a review on your favorite platform so that more people can find us. Thank you so much. Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Attention in Mexico is now turning to the 2024 election and the race to succeed President Andres Manuel López Obrador. What are the stakes? Who are the favorites? And what does it all mean for Latin America's second largest economy? Well, I would say that we have entered into full presidential succession mode. If things remain the same, it is Morena's election to lose. And it's going to be interesting nonetheless, uh, because this is a very large electoral process that, in process that involves not only the presidency and the federal Congress, but a lot of governorships, a lot of local legislatures. Well, we're playing our usual theme music here, but we thought about playing the theme from HBO's Succession, as the race to replace President Andres Manuel López Obrador is really starting to heat up now. And while I certainly wouldn't compare AMLO, as the president is known, to Logan Roy, everybody is trying to figure out who he wants to succeed him in the job. Recent events have intensified the focus on the July 2024 election, including last weekend's local elections in several states, and this week's decision by Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard to resign his post so that he can run for president within Morena, the ruling party. But we still don't know if the candidate in that party will be Ebrard, Mexico City Mayor Claudia Sheinbaum, or someone else. And there's a risk that race could split the party. Meanwhile, as the election draws closer, AMLO has become increasingly unpredictable, expropriating privately owned land in the state of Mexico and deepening his fight against the Supreme Court, electoral regulators, and other institutions who dare to oppose him. What can we expect from AMLO's final 18 months in office? What are the risks for Mexico's economy and its democratic institutions? Who does he seem to prefer? in the 2024 race. We'll look at all this in the next 30 minutes with our friend and repeat guest, the political analyst Carlos Bravo Regidor. Carlos is a prominent voice in the political debate in Mexico. Uh, he writes columns for Expansión and Reforma, co-hosts a political podcast and more. Carlos, welcome back to the AQ Podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Carlos, what is the current state of Mexican politics after not only these recent elections, but AMLO's decisions so far in 2023? Well, I would say that we have entered into full presidential succession mode. Now, the last custom stop, so to speak, happened uh, last Sunday with the last two gubernatorial elections before the presidential election of 2024. A lot of decisions were postponed until those two elections in the state of Coahuila and Estado de Mexico had passed and the results were known. So now in the coming month, in the coming couple of months, we will see a lot of long overdue definitions 
both from the official and the opposition camps in the official coalition, not only the, the method, but how are they going to be able to, you know, as we say in political science, discipline the losers, particularly because there seems to be certain pressures for the ones who are not clearly not the favorites of the president to maybe break away and try their luck with another party. So it, it's going to become very intense. And one of the things that I, I really regret about this is that the horse race is really sucking up all the oxygen away from policy discussions in a moment where Mexico is facing a lot of challenges. But that really is not a matter that anybody's paying attention to. A few months back, we had Luis Rubio on the podcast, and he noted that it's been common for Mexican presidents to take really drastic, consequential decisions in the last few months of their administrations, sometimes even after an election. He was referring to, among other things, the land expropriation in 1976 under the Luis Echeverria administration, bank nationalizations in 1982 under Jose López Portillo, <laughs> the shambolic final months of the Carlos Salinas government in 1994. Well, a few weeks ago, the AMLO government decided to expropriate a private railway line in southern Mexico. Should we expect more of that kind of thing in coming months? Do you think we're going to see a different, more liberated AMLO? Yes, we might, particularly because this president is very, very patient, but also very concerned about his legacy. And, you know, in contrast with the first half of his administration, he has really abandoned a more, let us say, social or progressive agenda. And now he's privileging it, particularly like very open, very explicit, very aggressive fights with the Supreme Court. Before that, it was the electoral authorities. And now he seems to have develops a certain knack for, you know, entering into conflict with the private sector. The thing with López Obrador is, López Obrador sometimes is much more interested in being seen giving the fight than in actually fighting it all the way. What he needs is to, is to be seen as, you know, I'm struggling, I'm trying, but there are all these obstacles to what I want to achieve and we need to fight harder against our adversaries, against the enemies of our transformation. When you look at the ambition of his so-called transformation and the actual enemies he's speaking, something really doesn't add up. For instance, he has had a very severe conflict with the Supreme Court. AMLO has said, for instance, that, you know, we need to change the way we appoint justices. We need to appoint them by popular vote instead of by congressional selection. Is that really so important for the sort of historical transformation that he once proposed? It really doesn't seem so. It seems like a political fight in the worst sense of the term. He wants the positions. He wants to uh, submit this sort of counterweight that he, the executive power has, but it has very little to do with the actual message that brought him to power, this hope, this change message, and seems to have a lot more to do with sort of a power grab. 
I sometimes joke that to really understand politics and particularly Latin American politics where the executive can be so strong that the best analysts are actually not political analysts, but psychoanalysts. If we were to try to, if we were to try to get into his head right now, where do you think he is? I mean, is he just thinking entirely about this question of succession or is he tying up loose ends in what he knows is the stretch run of his government or is there something else going on? I think Lopez Obrador is a very narrative driven politician, particularly how the things he does play into the story of his struggle, the story of his presidency. And of course, succession has become the main driver of this. So he's going out of power. But there are a lot of questions about the role he's going to play as the, well, to use a term he likes a lot, as the moral leader of his movement and his coalition. And if he's going to try to become sort of a Plutarco Elias Calles 2.0 or 21st century version of the famously known Maximato, which was a period where Plutarco Elias Calles was no longer the president, but the presidents that were running the country were, you know, seen as his puppets. If we are to judge him by his actions, by what seemed to be his intentions and by his speech, it certainly seems to me that Lopez Obrador has become increasingly bitter in the presidency. He had an idea of the presidency as a very powerful office, as a power that could not take no for an answer from other powers. And he's growing increasingly impatient and frustrated because the presidency in Mexico is probably far from that all-powerful image that he had from it and he pro- that he probably fantasized with. So I think in this case, experience is really having a victory over his expectations. There is another side to this. The other side essentially argues, look, yes, there have been decisions like this Grupo Mexico decision, famously the Tren Maya, the airport in Mexico City, that the business community didn't like. But actually the macro situation, mm, it could be better, but it's fine. You know, he has not engaged in big spending. In fact, you could argue that he's not spent enough. The peso has been pretty consistently valued throughout his presidency. So I guess the question becomes, do you really think there's risk of a departure from that relatively stable macroeconomic and even political framework that has guided his last four and a half years that if you talk to especially investors outside Mexico, they say, well, it's actually not that bad. That's a very good question, although I I would separate the economic and the political realm. I don't think he's going to make really bold economic decisions. He has turned out to be very conservative in his management of the economy. There there was a lot of scandal about this sort of expropriation with Grupo Mexico, but all presidents have done expropriations in Mexico in their terms. Expropriation is a constitutional power that presidents have in Mexico. You know, it was negotiated and it's all fair and good now. I think he is very concerned with economic stability. So my answer to your question would be no, no. He's going to continue down this austere, disciplined, 
conservative path, so to speak, and particularly because the economy is finally bouncing back after, you know, a long post-COVID season. Consumption is great. There is money in the economy and you can talk with, you know, business people in all sorts of sectors and they will tell you, well, you know, things could be better for sure, but they're not bad enough. Although one has to say, you know, we've grown used to very mediocre rates of economic growth in the last decades. And, you know, the promise of AMLO was supposed to, you know, try to change that. But you don't see a risk, for example, of some truly huge change like uh, Mexico announcing its departure from the USMCA trade agreement, which I there have been kind of weird rumors flying around for the better part of a year now. We've talked about them on the podcast before. You don't see AMLO in a mood to sort of do anything really transformative in that vein or compared to some of the other examples that I cited before with Echeverria, Salinas and others. No, not at all. I I actually would say that we haven't had such an integrationist president as Lopez Obrador with the U.S., I mean, commercially and economically since probably Salinas de Gortari. Lopez Obrador has really pushed for a larger integration with the U.S., in a way that hadn't been seen. And even, you know, he has been open about this at the same time that ideologically or politically, he has been very careful to cultivate distance with the U.S. You know, there's been an undeniable reapproachment with Cuba during his term. Although, as I like to say, Cuba is sort of the left turning light that Lopez Obrador turns on every time he's going to turn right with the United States. I think it should be understood in those terms. He's very concerned with his leftist credentials more than with the progressive content of his policies. Although there's an argument, an ironic argument to be made that USMCA, that NAFTA 2.0 has actually had a much more progressive effect in terms of workers' rights in terms of union rights in Mexico than previously. There's been really what one of the few fields where there is consensus in terms of, you know, significant change during AMLO's term. It's the labor world. Oddly enough, this is a consequence not of a strong workers' movement, but in part because, you know, Lopez Obrador adopted this agenda, but also because of international pressures but created both by USMCA and also by the OIT, the Labor International Organization. So to be clear, you're not so worried about the economic part of the equation or even Mexico's role in North America and the world. You, like many other people, are concerned more about the kind of institutional democratic side and the concentration of power. That's right. For me, for me, the name of the game is democratic backsliding. Although, I mean, you can argue fairly that democratic backsliding will eventually have some sort of economic impact, and it might, although as we've seen, for instance, in the case of Turkey, it might take many years for that impact to really kick in. And yes, my concern is particularly in terms of politics, in terms of his relationship with the Supreme Court, in terms of the integrity of Mexican elections. I think there is a reasonable doubt at this point if 2024 is going to be a free and fair election. I think it's going to be free, but I have my doubts if it's going to be fair. 
Yeah, that's a very important distinction. Well, so Carlos, let's talk about 2024. Let's look at that horse race that we were talking about earlier. Uh, There's no way around it, and it is important. But looking at Morena, AMLO's party, even though Marcelo Ebrard just resigned as foreign minister to enter the race, the conventional wisdom that I hear is that the favorite to be the presidential candidate is clearly Claudia Sheinbaum, the mayor of Mexico City. Is that how you see it? And what nuances might we be missing outside of Mexico? That's a very fair portrayal of it. I think that the runners-up are Mexico City Major, Claudia Sheinbaum, the Minister of Foreign Relations, Marcelo Ebrard, and the Minister of the Interior, Adán Augusto López. And if everything remains more or less the same, it's probably going to be Claudia Sheinbaum. At this point, I think the critical question is, what is Marcelo Ebrard going to do? I mean, he's a very pragmatic politician. He's not a kamikaze. I don't think he's going to break away, storm out of the room, so to speak. But I think he has a calculus to make because his political future under Claudia Sheinbaum, who has been his rival, particularly during the second term of López Obrador, it is clear that it would be very hard for him to work with her, to be part of her cabinet, or to be leader of some Morena caucus, either in the lower of the chamber or in the Senate. So he has a very uncertain political future if he chooses, you know, to to lower his head and to obey the president, so to speak. And if he goes with the opposition, even though he would pay a very, very high cost because Obradoristas would come, you know, against him, it would really redefine the opposition's field because he would immediately become the most attractive, the most competitive candidate. And, you know, all other opposition candidates would be almost automatically erased. And it would be him against Claudia Sheinbaum. So I think it's it's sort of, sort of a Marcelo moment for the coming days or weeks. And that definition is going to be very, very important. How does Ebrard's resignation as foreign minister change the race? Marcelo leaving the Secretary of Foreign Relations does alter the field in a couple of ways. Number one, it raises the stakes for the other Obradorista hopefuls, and it forces them to quit as he has done. The president in that regard has, he has adopted Ebrard's proposal that all of the hopefuls that want to compete for Morena's candidacy have to leave, quit their government jobs, so to speak, and devote full-time campaigning. That's a victory for Marcelo Ebrard in itself. And number two, it gives him a certain advantage in terms of showing he has influenced the game, the competition for Morena's candidacy. If the other hopefuls don't quit their jobs or the methodology of the poll is not acceptable for Marcelo, then his only exit would be to jump to the opposition field. We expect that there will be some kind of primary process within Morena to select a candidate. And AMLO said this week that he will not, in practice, do the dedazo, the famous Mexican process dating back to the years of the pre in which the president effectively named his successor. Now, of course, what AMLO has the power to do is name his preferred candidate within Morena, not the president. But 
Do we believe him? I mean, isn't this at the end of the day, isn't whoever AMLO prefers likely to be Morena's candidate? And if so, who do you think, putting on your psychoanalyst hat again, who do you think AMLO prefers? To be honest, I, I don't think you need the psychoanalyst hat to answer the last question. I think it's very clear that his favorite is Claudia Sheinbaum. And AMLO is in a sweet spot right now because the polls, you know, that have been done about, you know, the public's preferences for Morena's candidates indicate that AMLO's favorite is the runner-up, is the favorite of the people as well. So AMLO is in a sweet spot where he could say, well, you know, my favorite one, but you, everybody knows she was heading the polls. So fair game. I was just, you know, a lucky guy. You can't accuse me that I, I appointed her with my finger because it was actually, you know, a well-done poll that selected her. That might be true, although one of the reasons she has become the favorite is that she has received this very significant, consistent, and, you know, many people would argue with reason, illegal support from Lopez Obrador, from his government. She has done, she's already campaigning, even though that is prohibited by law. But well, that hasn't mattered. So I think that is one of the reasons why AMLO wants to get this over with. He wants the poll to be done as soon as possible because his candidate is leading. So this is the moment for him to close the deal. In your post-elections analysis on TV and radio on Monday, you said that you think results show there is clearly an opposition electorate, but not necessarily an opposition candidate who can address that. What does that mean exactly? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, there's been a lot of simplification in the Mexican public conversation about the opposition. And a lot of people have said there is no opposition. Let us just, you know, let that sinking Morena is going to win. And I partially disagree with that because I think electoral processes all throughout the term have shown that there is a voting public that is consistently against voting against the official candidates. There is an opposition electorate, to be sure, between 35, 40, 45%, which is a lot. And in any presidential regime, it would be a force to be reckoned with, for sure. Nevertheless, opposition parties and opposition leaders have not been able to actually galvanize and to sort of unite and mobilize this electorate in a way that really threatens Morena's predominance. So we might, you know, paraphrase Jose Revueltas and say, there is an opposition electorate, but without a head. Opposition parties have been really underperforming, making, you know, bad, strange decisions. A lot of people, including myself, think that their priority is, is not necessarily winning, but keeping control of their parties in a way that is very defeating and very demoralizing for that opposition electorate. I think that they have sort of a, this appetite for survival more than an ambition of transcendence. And, you know, that what happens with people who are too worried with political survival instead of really trying to make a dent or to leave a mark politically is that, you know, sometimes they might survive 
but in a way that becomes very relevant. I look at this election and I look, Mexico, for me, not one of the countries in the region that I understand best in part because it's so big, and so complex. I lived there for a year a long time ago, but don't have the the experience perhaps. And I had some of the other South American countries, but my view, and I think I hear this a lot in sort of the, the analyst space, is that this is Morena's election to lose maybe even like a, an 80% chance sitting here today that Morena wins next year. Does that does that sound fair to you? Does that seem high or does it sound about right? Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. If things remain the same, it is Morena's election to lose. And it's going to be interesting nonetheless, not necessarily because of the presidential race, but more, I would focus more on the congressional election, on gubernatorial elections, because this is a very large electoral process that in, in process that involves not only the presidency and the federal Congress, but a lot of governorships, a lot of local legislatures. So it's going to be an election interesting more for what happens in the margins than in the center that, of course, is going to be the presidential race. Morena is in a good position, but for instance, there's a big if in terms of if they can manage to win a large, a constitutional majority in Congress. A majority, Morena or the Morena coalition, a majority is strong enough to actually reform the constitution. So I think those are questions that are up in the air. They're not seen as decided as a presidential race. But at the same time, you know, something can happen if there is a break within the Morena, the Obradorista coalition, or if, you know, the opposition comes out with a great strategy or a great candidacy, you know, things might get interesting there as well. That's possible, although seems unlikely. In 30 seconds, Carlos, are there any names we should be watching in the opposition space? Well, to be honest, I think the most interesting name would be Marcelo Ebrard. That would really be a game changer, a reset button, so to speak. Carlos, it's always such an insightful conversation with you and a, and a fun one sometimes, too. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. It's always great to join you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.